This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. Arthur Levitt is a former chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, a Bloomberg LP board member, a senior advisor to the Promontory Financial Group, and a policy advisor to Goldman Sachs. Jay Clayton began his career as a clerk for the Honorable Marvin Katz of the United States District Court for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. He then joined the Wall Street law firm of Sullivan and Cromwell, where he advised on capital raising and regulatory enforcement. Until 2017, when he was nominated to chair the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. As chairman, he created the Fixed Income Market Structure Advisory Committee to examine and address equity and fixed income market structure issues, and the commission just finalized its regulation best interest to replace the Department of Labor's fiduciary standard. He joins me now for a closer look. The replacement for the fiduciary standard, regulation best interest, was just finalized. You said that we're raising the standard of conduct for broker-dealers. You're going to have to be very candid with your investor. That's a wonderful question because the complaints that we get, the cases that we see, they often involve a lack of candor from the financial professional to the customer. And what customers want to know, what people want to know, is how are you, my financial professional, making your money? And how much of my money is going to work for me? What our standard, our new regulation best interest for brokers, and what our interpretation for investment advisors make clear is that you've got to tell your client, your customer, how you're making your money and how much of their money is going to work for them. It's been way too long in our marketplace that that has not been clear. The SEC doesn't actually define best interest. Instead, assessment of the facts and circumstances of how the broker-dealer has satisfied the four component obligations of regulation best interest is the basis for judgment. What are the four components? Well, let me just say that there are actually five. There's an overriding component which is as a broker-dealer, you cannot put your interests ahead of your customers. So in addition to that overriding requirement that did not exist before, we have four other requirements. There's a duty of care, a clear duty of care. You have to know your customer. You have to think about what products are right for your customer given their circumstances. We also have a duty of disclosure. You have to tell your customer, as we just spoke about, how you're making your money and how much of their money is going to work for them. Then you have a conflict mitigation requirement. You have to look at your conflicts and either mitigate them, eliminate them. And then finally, we have a policy and procedure requirement. That policy and procedure requirement, it's part of a package. You can have standards, but unless you have policies and procedures to judge them against, it makes it very difficult for people like the SEC to inspect for those standards and to the extent people breach them to enforce them. So those policies and procedures have a twofold purpose. One is to ensure that the broker is actually following the rules, and then it gives us a way to check whether they're following the rules. Regulation 
best interest was approved along party lines with a three to one vote. Now, states like New Jersey and Massachusetts and Nevada have taken up their own rulemaking to address what they have said are serious shortcomings in the new SEC rule. What are you going to do about those states to see if there isn't a way for the federal government and states to work closer together on this issue? So throughout the process of coming up with regulation best interest, which let me just say this. This was an organic process at the SEC. It was driven by our long-term career staff, including our inspection staff and our enforcement staff. We've engaged with representatives of the states. None of what we were doing came as a surprise to the states. And I believe in continuing that kind of engagement. So, you know, I expect that at my level, and at the staff level, we will continue to engage with the states as we implement regulation best interest. Let me address your, your, your question in a broader sense. This was 10, 20 years overdue, a reassessment of how financial professionals deal with their retail customers. It should not shock anybody that in that 10, 20 years, political views have developed. Now, that's the way things work. If something has been unaddressed for a long time, of course politics is going to enter, particularly something this big. You know, depending on you how you measure it, this is either a $40 trillion or an $80 trillion market. It's gigantic. So, you know, I expect that we will have to go through questions about whether we've done the right thing or haven't done the right thing. I can tell you that our staff, who inspect for these things every day, enforce these things every day, and have the experience, they know that we've done the right thing here. They're comfortable with this. Yes. In fact, I was just in San Francisco meeting with our San Francisco office, and sua sponte, you know, without, without prompting, um, our inspection staff told me that the fiduciary interpretation and regulation best interest is going to make it much easier for them to get the bad guys. Another part of regulation best interest is form CRS, the Customer Relationship Summary, which provides a way to compare brokers with advisors, the different types of services advisors provide, the duties they owe, and the compensation they receive. The Commission has chosen to give advisors flexibility in how they present that critical information. Do you believe that most retail investors will be able to adequately understand those particular disclosures? Let me frame what we've done here. For some time, both brokers and investment advisors have had disclosure obligations. However, there's been no page limit or framework around those disclosure obligations other than some lengthy forms. They've worked adequately. For the first time, we're saying if it's important to a retail customer, you've got to fit it on two or four pages. Now, I expect that many retail customers will be able to digest this information in the format that we've presented it. But more importantly, it will allow, I would say, other market participants to compare brokers form CRS, investment advisors form CRS, and assess which ones have certain business models and which ones have, I would say, more complicated business models. That information will become much more apparent in the future than it is today. Turning to 
the world of cryptocurrency. Initial coin offerings, or ICOs, have been a problem. You found that many were fraudulent, and now you have to deal with a spin-off IEOs, initial exchange offerings, another way to generate capital. How are they different, and are IEOs proving to be somewhat safer for investors? Well, let's just let's just take a step back and level set here. I think uh, you and I, and I, and I want to say I always enjoy being here with you and having these conversations. A year and a half ago, we talked about ICOs, and I and I raised a great deal of concern as this was just a another way to conduct a securities offering, um, but people were not following the rules. It turns out if you look at that cohort of ICOs from a year and a half ago. Um, I don't know if you can find one where an investor made money, and I know you can find hundreds, if not thousands, where investors lost substantially all of their money. I am highly skeptical of new ways of conducting securities offering that don't follow our rules. Now, if you want to use digital assets in a way that is compliant with our longstanding rules for making securities offerings, I am all for it. We'll sit down. We'll help you. We have a fin hub. We have people there willing to help in, in how, to, how to mechanically conduct these offerings, but you still have to give people disclosure that's adequate for them to make an investment decision. Just calling it an IEO or an ICO when it's a securities offering and then saying I don't need to disclose the financial performance of my venture, in a word, it's crazy town. Do all your commissioners agree with that? Yes. You've been assessing and planning for the potential adverse effects on U.S. capital markets from Brexit, including a possible no-deal Brexit. What's your greatest concern? Well, like anything, your concerns evolve over time. Before the delay of Brexit, uh, my concern was uh, a, a broader economic concern uh, that investors did not have a full picture for what Brexit meant for the companies they were invested in and what broad economic effect it could have and therefore affect those companies. The disclosure that has been coming out from companies has improved in that regard. Then we'll turn to the mechanics of Brexit. Are there things that, you know, from a regulatory perspective as a result of Brexit, will create frictions that we and our fellow financial regulators will have to deal with? Some of those still exist. Bloomberg reported that officials in the SEC's enforcement division are investigating Boeing over the fatal crash of the 737 MAX. Is that what the SEC is looking for in terms of what brought about that accident? So I, I'm not going to comment on any specific investigation, whether it's happening or not happening. I, I'm uh, very... Uh, let me put it this way. I don't think it's appropriate for somebody in my position. But what I will say about our enforcement is that we are a disclosure-oriented regulator. And the question, the fundamental question is, you know, have you adequately informed investors of the information they need to make an investment decision? So when we look at, you know, when we look at anything, that's, that's the question. Now, there's a tendency in to ask the SEC to go beyond its mandate to regulate 
environmental issues, to regulate other issues. And you know, we should, we should understand those issues. We are part of, that's part of the economy. We need to understand them, but we need to be careful that we're not overstepping our bounds. Um, I, I, I have great respect for staying in your lane. I think government works most effectively when people stay in their lane. Turning to politics, is the present commission party-oriented, or do the Democrats and Republicans uh, tend to vote together as a group? Let me take the second part of that first. And I, I don't look at the, the statistics to any great extent, but I think if you look at the statistics, you'll find that the commissioners largely vote together on matters. Um, but there are matters on which there's disagreements. Um, I think some people categorize those disagreements as generated by politics. I can tell you that in my time as chairman, what I've fundamentally asked is, what's the right thing for investors over the long term? That's what's driven my agenda. It's driven what I bring for a vote of the commissioners. And I think that's been the right way to approach being chairman of what is an administrative agency. From a personality point of view, I cannot think of any possible human being that could do a better job of getting commissioners of any party stripe to go along with what he thought was best for the commission in the country. Thank you. Has Donald Trump spoken to you about what he expects from the commission? So um, when I was offered this job, uh, the president-elect asked me to do a good job. And let me say this. He asked me to do a good job, and he said he would leave me to do a good job. And he's kept to his word. A Dodd-Frank rule was just finalized with a compromise that would place most uncleared swaps trading by CFTC-registered firms under the CFTC's capital rules, avoiding the additional SEC charge. It's been said that the SEC and CFTC are going to work more closely together on policy and enforcement. Has that worked that way? It has. I, I, I look at the Dodd-Frank Title VII as an opportunity. It, it has required the commission to write an entire body uh, of new rules to deal with securities-based swaps um, and related matters. For most people, this will, will be esoteric. But, but this created an opportunity for us to engage with the CFTC. And I believe Chairman John Carlo, who's, who's about to leave after a, after a nice tenure there, took the same view, which is, okay, we get to write on a bit of a blank slate here to create a new... Uh, I would say, regulatory framework for securities-based swaps. Let's try to do it in a way where there's a great deal of cooperation. Now, we're not completely harmonized. We have a different mandate from the CFTC. The CFTC is largely an institutional regulator, largely a risk transfer regulator. We have a much broader investor protection mandate, and so I have to respect that. But by and large, we've coordinated very well. Does the SEC have the manpower and budget to take on the task of managing the best interest rule? 
So when I got to the commission, I made an assessment of where we stood in terms of, of manpower. And our greatest asset is our people. It's 70, 75% of our budget. It's the most important thing we have. Other than people, we have some, some technology, which is pretty good, and we have space, office space. I am looking to grow our staff in several areas. And one of the areas is what I'll call financial professional surveillance. The ability to make good risk assessment of where we should inspect, the ability to take the data that they provide to us and use that data to identify risks areas. I'm particularly excited about some of the tools we have to identify churning. So the short answer to your question is, I want to put more resources into that area and I feel like we have a good way to do it. Have you made any progress in terms of better uh, defining what insider trading is? Insider trading is, uh, well, it's been defined by the courts over the years. Let me say this. Have they gotten it perfect? No. Have they done a really good job in terms of addressing the need to get at what we all know is nefarious and improper activity, but at the same time not discouraging people from trying to ferret out information. We want people looking at whether trucks actually have the equipment in them. We want people you know, in trying to find out whether companies are telling us the truth or not. We want people searching for information. It helps all investors. We want them to do it in the right way. And I think the courts have done a pretty good job on, on dividing that line between the the proper search for information and the improper search for information. What's the status of our relationship with foreign regulators? Are we in tune? Are there any significant differences between uh, regulatory bodies that we deal with? I'll take your, your question in reverse and then I'll end with something positive. I think to always be searching for being in tune to uh, I'd say ignoring other issues is a mistake. Of course, we're going to be out of step with foreign regulators on certain issues. They have different agendas. They have different politics. They have different economies. We are in tune on a number of important issues. But what I will say, and, I'm, and I feel really pretty good about, is we have a candid relationship with our foreign regulators. There's no doubt in their minds where we stand and I think I have a pretty good understanding of where they stand. And if you have that kind of relationship, you can, you can get more done. Three major high-speed trading firms are backing an appeals court filing by the New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ, and the CBOE Global Markets to have the transaction fee pilot program ruled unlawful and beyond your authority. What's the purpose of the fee pilot program, and why is there so much pushback? So let me, again, try to level set where we are. It's been about a decade since we established the rules for what I'll call our market ecosystem, our equity markets trading ecosystem. A lot has changed. Uh, people ask me, you know, what percentage of our market is electronic trading? The answer is, just about 100%. Virtually every order goes through some kind of algorithm before it is executed, and whether it's executed um, 
whatever venue it's executed on, whether it's executed on exchange, off exchange, and internalizer, or, or, or all those words show you how complicated it's become. The question is, with all the changes, do we still have it right? The purpose of the transaction fee pilot is to get the data for us to be able to assess whether we still have it right, whether we still have our trading ecosystem operating for the long-term interests of our market. And that's, that's one component of it. Do you have any feeling about it up to now? Do I have any feeling about it? Yeah. I, I think it's overdue for assessment. Mm -hmm. This was a recommendation from our Equity Market Structure Advisory Committee on a way to get data to assess the market, and I think it's entirely appropriate for us to be assessing whether the marketplace of today is as efficient and effective as it should be. You've said that we currently have what can be described as a two-tiered system of market data and market access in U.S. equity markets as Technology has shifted the regulatory landscape since the adoption of regulation NMS over a decade ago. What do you think needs to be changed or updated to keep up with best execution? So I have, going back to my, my prior answer, I have no set change in mind. No set change in mind to make the markets work better but the characteristic you cited, that there are people who access data much more quickly and in much greater detail than many other participants in the marketplace, I think it's my job to look at that and assess whether that is the most effective way for the market to operate. CFTC Commissioner Rostin Berman is warning that risks from climate change are a serious as those posed by the mortgage meltdown, risk to financial markets, mortgage holders, insurance companies, pensions, all could be affected by extreme weather. Is the SEC thinking about this issue? Yes, and we've thought about it for a long time. We've put out disclosure guidance on how companies should think about discussing the risks of climate change and regulation related to climate change and other effects to their investors, and that guidance has been out for some time. We've been reviewing that guidance. We've been reviewing the disclosures that public companies make. I think if you look at the disclosures that public companies make around this, particularly those where climate change may have an impact on their operations, you'll see that the disclosure is fairly robust. What is the turnover rate at the commission now? in terms of numbers of people that are we have a very low turnover rate we have a very low turnover rate and and what i really like about it is i don't think all 4500 people love their job but a lot of them really love their job yeah the 4500 people that you speak of is about the same as the number of people that i dealt with when i was at the commission everything else has gone up why hasn't that number been 9,000 people. Well, I, I deal with the reality that I have, and as, and as we discussed, I think there are areas, particularly in the area of, we talked about market structure, market surveillance, understanding markets, inspecting investment advisors, using, using technology to make us better. Th those areas and are areas where we need to grow our human capital, both in, both in expertise and in number of people. 
He was a partner at the international law firm of Sullivan and Cromwell for over 20 years, where he was a member of the firm's management committee and co-head of the firm's corporate practice, while also a lecturer in law and adjunct professor at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. In 2017, he began his term as the chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Chairman Jay Clayton, thanks for joining us. By the way, if you have comments about the program or suggestions for topics, please email me at a closer look at Bloomberg.net. That's a closer look, one word, at Bloomberg.net. And follow me on Twitter at Arthur Levitt, one word. This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. It's 25 minutes past the hour.